are back. Um, how you been, man? I've been doing well. Um, a little busy with all the homework that you left me, but uh, in general, I've been doing well. What about you, man? Uh, same, pretty good. Um, was there anything you wanted to discuss, anything on the news, or should we just get into it? Uh, if, if you want, like we could actually get on the topic first, and then perhaps drive into something else, because um, yeah. we tend to always <laughs> just <laughs> get off the rails a little bit with the topics. So yeah, like if you want, we can start directly with that. Yeah, because um, this one's going to be a little bit more focused on um, church history. And um, I decided to have a discussion about uh, this. I should say that we're going to be discussing the um, some of the additional Gospels that were written and exist outside that traditional canon. And um, recently, there was a new translation of um, most of the Gospels by Penguin Publishers. And um, yeah, I I decided to get that so that um, and I thought it would be something that uh, we should discuss because it's something that I'm pretty familiar with. And like, I think you have some familiarity with it as well. Yeah, I have read a little bit about them. Um, mostly on the sense of, like, and, and I don't want to get ahead of the topic because I think it will be very interesting um, to discuss them a little bit before we get to this, but um, most of my approach to some of this, and I'll be honest, like some of these I didn't know actually. So, or, or for example, something that amazed me the most, um, some of these um, writings, I knew of, pieces of them or like certain doctrines that came out of them but i did not know that it came out of this so it's quite interesting to actually like now be able to put like a name to a thing yeah Um, so yeah like most of my approach to this is just as understanding why were they not included in the scripture right so but we will this i'm sure that we will discuss that throughout the episode so yeah if you want to lead us up with um perhaps some of the uh, writings that you find a lot more interesting or the, the ones that you prefer the most well yeah um i think we can probably go in order um but right. uh, just like a quick introduction i think a lot of people will have heard of these documents uh, mostly from conspiracy theories about the church so um they became pretty popular around the time of the Da Vinci Code because um, it mentioned additional Gospels, um, sometimes secret Gospels that provided additional information about Jesus, his ministry, his life. Um, In the Da Vinci Code, they talk about Jesus' wife um, and other things that Jesus supposedly did on earth and uh, early Christians supposedly um, believed and practiced these um, gospels. We, we sh- I should say that there were many, many gospels and, and they all discuss different aspects of um, Jesus' life as we're going to get into it. I think probably the most popular and this one is, I really want to know what you think about it because it's probably one of the most influential non-canonical 
documents for Christians, and that's the that's the Gospel of James. Um, James was Jesus' brother. The um, Proto Evangelium. Yeah, uh, otherwise known as the Proto Evangelium of James. And just a quick rundown on the Proto Evangelium.、Um, it's probably written sometime in the、um, middle to late second century.、Um, the author. Claims to have been James, but I don't know if I'll discuss it later. But、um, it most likely isn't, especially because it's much later dating.、Um, and like,、uh, I will, I would like to say though, for for the viewers, like most of the books that we're going to discuss present the same sort、yeah. of like challenge, right? Like someone says that they that someone in particular wrote it, but. Because most of these books, and it's gonna be hilarious, so because at least from the Proto Evangelium of James, we tend to have a little bit of a, like more pages to them. But some of them are actually like just a small piece of paper,、okay. right? Like something like a small like、uh, credit card kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, just like a just like a paragraph.、Um, yeah, exactly. So almost the same thing that happens with these two philosophers. You know,、um, I think it's Heraclitus. Heraclitus. I don't remember his name. Remember those philosophers that. Uh, one of them said that everything is in constant change, and the other one said that everything、yeah. is always like Heraclitus. Yeah, I think. Yeah, Heraclitus. Yeah, exactly. And there's another one, and most of the writings are just like pieces of paper. Yeah. So it's it's quite fascinating because that is a challenge. And good thing that you mentioned that, right? Like most of these books that we're going to talk, but not not books, but like writings that we're going to talk about, face that challenge of we don't really know who wrote them. We have sort of like an idea because of、so、in some cases the actual authors claim to be certain figures, but it's very difficult to actually put a finger on who actually wrote them, right? Yeah.、Um, and for the Proto Evangelium of James,、um, what's interesting about the Gospel is that it's not just about Jesus. It、yep. actually starts much earlier with Mary and the conception of Mary. And then、um, it talks a little bit about Mary's childhood in the temple, and then it moves across over to、um, Jesus at his birth. But yeah,、uh, yeah. So,、um, what did you think about reading? Were you familiar with the that text before? Like I said、um, at the beginning, though, I was familiar with some of the doctrines that sprung from this text, and I have to be honest, I was very amazed. By by my experience, identifying some of these doctrines and being like, "What did this came out of this?" and it makes a lot more sense because yeah. And another thing that you said at the beginning, right?、Um, some Christians believe this, but it does not mean that these writings became part of the orthodox. You have to understand is that. When we talked about early Christian writings and early Christian sort of like canon, and I will use like quotation marks right now because I'm not speaking of like the official canon,、um, is that in the case, for example, of the Proto Evangelium of James, it is quite interesting to see all of these stories about Mary, especially because it gives us like an idea of who the parents of Mary are. Uh, it, it allows us to sort of like see her as a more humane, the slash divine kind of figure. You know,、uh, you know. I think these.、Uh, it, it is in this in this gospel、um, where it says that 
she was presented in the temple. Yeah. Right? Like she had to be like there in the temple. And that is like a festivity in some Christian denominations that still upholds today. So it's quite interesting to see that. And the, the, the incredible focus on Mary, like it could be debated on why like we don't have that focus anymore. Right? Like I honestly would say like mostly because what we care about is Jesus, not Mary. But it's not the same for all Christian denominations, right? Like a lot of Christian denominations place a lot of importance on her. So obviously, if they are inclined to present importance or to give importance to Mary, well, like this will be a reading that they will be very interested on. Interestingly enough, is not in the scripture. So yeah, like it, it, it is a very, um, a very, and I don't want to use the word interesting again, but like, a very, what can I say, like intriguing piece of work, especially because of what it talks about, like a lot more in depth in the history of Mary. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this one is the one where they present Joseph as an older man, right? Like a, a, like a lot older, that he's going to sort of like take care of Mary, not so much like marry her, and that he has like children from another marriage before her. Am I correct? Yeah. And um... And this is what I was going to get into a bit later, but you brought it up now, so it's um it's good. Um, like I said, this document claims to be from James, um, Jesus' brothers. In you know, in tradition, um, James got these stories from his mother, and then he wrote them down. Um, but we know that that's very likely not the case, and because of the dating as well we can see that the document itself is more like a work of apologetics um, because yep. as, as you say, um, it does um, start to develop certain traditions. It's likely that around this time, Mary's virginity was something that was being challenged uh, and the virgin birth. Suddenly we have this document show up mm that gives us all the explanations and it gives us the apologetic arguments to prove why Mary would have been a virgin and why she remained a virgin ever, like, even after um, the birth of Jesus. The apologetics are, like, if you read it carefully, you can see the apologetics very clearly um, because, yeah, uh, Mary was presented to the temple and you know she grew up in the temple then when she was 12 or um after puberty she was uh they decided that it was time for her to get married and they decided to cast lots it says and the person who was chosen was um joseph but um Joseph, he is reluctant. He doesn't want to. And he even says that people are going to make fun of him <laughs> because he's so old. And um, um, Joseph says he has he already has kids. He's a widow. But he is forced to um, take her home. And it even says that Joseph left because he had some work to do. He la Joseph left for like a few months during the time they were engaged. And then when Joseph comes back, that's after, right after the angel has already done the annunciation and stuff. And, you know, Joseph finds Mary. Therefore, it removes any possibility that Joseph um, would have been the father. And 
it, like it walks us through the virgin birth and um there's even a very graphic description of the midwife inspecting mary's virginity and yeah like this is a very important text for those people who want to insist on the perpetual virginity of mary because yeah like you were saying like this is the source of a lot of these traditions and again um something important to understand about this at least from a christian perspective because i think you actually were very wise on starting this segment with this recent kind of like um like very I don't know how to say like hyperbolic kind of work of science fiction work of like the Da Vinci Code and all this by Dan Brown. Yeah. Um, he, he actually like, let us be honest, like his, his work is actually rather entertaining, right? Like it sparks the interest. I'm a big fan of his main character, Dr. What's his name? Langdon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I didn't remember. I was like, oh, that's an amazing job, right? So I was like, <laughs> it's amazing that he knows so much. And like, I really enjoy his books as a science fiction reading because I do know that that's what it is, right? Like, but I don't know if you agree on this, but I, I think one of the, the main reasons why it appeals to people is because it's very Gnostic in the sense of it is very like, I know something that you do not know. And when you, we move into the Gospel of Mary, and, and you actually said it right here, you said it is very important for those people that do hold to the perpetual virginity of Mary. And why hold to the perpetual virginity of Mary? Simple enough, because that makes her a lot more special. And why is it important to make her a lot more special? Well, because during the second century, there was, I don't remember his name, it, there was a philosopher that argued that um, one of the reasons why Mary got pregnant is because she actually slept with a soldier named Pantera. And yeah. after she was found in adultery, like it was only Joseph who actually was able to take it. So yeah, you, your presentation on the book of being like a very apologetic kind of book to try to explain something. And, and, and this is another important thing. They are trying to explain how this came about to a group of people that do not believe the gospel, meaning they do not believe that Mary was actually impregnated by the Holy Spirit um, and that she was actually like, through miraculous means, giving birth to the savior of the world, right? Like that's not something that the readers will, will believe. And it's, it's quite interesting to see it actually being presented as graphic as possible, like you said, right? Like explain as crude as possible to make people be like oh right so this is what happened <laughs> right so you're just like okay makes everything makes sense now uh, <laughs> because it becomes a lot easier right the yeah um it says the midwife put her hand inside mary and then it got burnt off like and then oh. then the angel tells the midwife to um to show her hand to the baby and the baby will um the baby heals yeah the baby heals her now I, I don't know if you caught this like um it's really odd because it's not even part of the traditional catholic presentation of the virgin birth um the birth happened when a cloud came over and there was a light like there was a really bright light that shone and then as the light started receding 
a baby appeared. Did you did you catch that? No, 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 it didn't. All right, so like pretty much, ah, obviously, yeah, like you know why that makes so much sense, or are you sort of like getting to that point? Like I, I don't know if you, you would agree that that would make sense in a matter of an apologetic term. Again, go back to the minds of people that do not believe in a miraculous birth of the savior of the world. And then tell them that Mary is perpetually virgin, uh, like a virgin, right? So that happening makes it possible, logically speaking, that she remains a virgin without actually um, debating or going against yeah, having a, Christ being born, right? Yeah. Yeah, like that's what's interesting because like normally the it's presented as a very natural human birth. Yeah, well, I, I think all of us have been part of a pastorella. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, we have seen all of that. Here it says like basically Jesus, a baby Jesus appeared out of like the light. Which, yeah, like he was just carried, right? Yeah, like it doesn't actually depict like a normal natural birth, which is odd. I've heard some people even suggest that there might be like some flirtation with Gnosticism. Oh no, there is not some sort of flirtation with Gnosticism. This is Gnostics. Um, have you heard of the guys called Encriatites? I don't even know if I'm saying it correctly in English. In Spanish, it's called Encriatites. No. They're a sect. And according to some of the stuff that I read, um, this particular gospel is attributed to their work. So I'm like, like, like I said at the beginning, like most of these papers, are, like all of them actually, are written by Gnostics. And what is a Gnostic? Some of our viewers may ask, right? Like, would you like to um, to explain what is a Gnostic? Sure. Um, like, well, because I will, I think I will be very unbiased. <laughs> well, generally, the term is applied very broadly, but it refers to um, early Christians or a type of Christian. They basically rejected um, Yahweh from the Old Testament. And they believed he was not God. Instead, he was like a, a demiurge. So almost like a lower divinity. And like part of their belief was that Yahweh, this demiurge, he corrupted um, creation by making physical uh, or material uh, beings, material reality. Because Gnostics, like they borrowed a lot from Plato, and you know they believed that humans and all pretty much everything around us was existed before perfectly in the forms or as spiritual beings. But in their version, Yahweh pretty much imprisons like people into um, their material physical bodies, and the real God, which was like some. Um, great power he sent jesus down to earth but because the material reality is a corruption um jesus did not actually take a physical body what is the orthodox christian belief um instead jesus only appeared as human but he remained as a uh, divine like being a yeah yeah he was pretty much faking it right now yeah. actually I want to jump in here because uh, <laughs> when I pass you the candle of telling the viewers what Gnostic is, like I gave you like a really hard topic, um, mostly because Gnostics were very different. 
yeah. I, I think we, we agree that there were a lot of different Gnostic groups. And yeah, and here, here's the thing, like coming coming from a Christian, like the moment you move away from accepting the divinity of Christ, according to like Christian orthodoxy, you stop being a Christian. Uh, you become a heretic. And now that's a modern day, like really hardcore war. That, that's what I say, like, you give it a shot because I'm just going to be like, there are a bunch of heretics. <laughs> um, I'm going to go full crusader on you guys. Um, but, but here's the thing though. That what you just explained, it's a part of Gnosticism, right? It's like one aspect to it because we yeah. also have like a gospel from one of these guys. I think it's the next one. Uh, I know it's the number 10. It's Martin's gospel. Yeah, yeah, Martin's gospel. I, I, I don't know if you agree. Like, we, do you want to discuss a little bit more games so we can jump into Martians? Um, is, was there anything else you needed to say about James? Um, well, I read a little bit that they misinterpret, he misinterpreted, or like at least the author misinterpreted a little bit like um, Jewish traditions. But um, really, like, I, I don't think that's important. I was going to say that, you know, just one interesting thing about the Gospel of James is that it also. I don't know if it was the translation that I read, but uh, maybe you got the same thing, but um, it almost presented like Mary's own birth was divine. Yeah, he elevated Mary's a lot. Um, again, there's an, an angel comes to Mary's mother, and it's basically the same story. Like Mary's mother, Anna, is it? Um she's like really really old so she's worried that she's not gonna have kids and the angel appears to to her and um tells her that she will be pregnant and then her husband Zachariah, is coming um is it Zachariah or i don't remember no Zachariah is i think the other guy i think it's uh joachim he yeah he yeah he's coming back and then the angel appears to him and he says your prayers have been answered and your wife is pregnant you know so it's like at which point did she get pregnant unless it was of course by the holy spirit yeah which um it's pretty much a repetition of um of jesus own uh conception and I imagine it's also from where what inspired a lot of the immaculate conception beliefs. Of course. Because and also, like, if any of you have read, like, the Old Testament, it's a pretty much a retelling of Abraham's story, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Taking away a couple of things. So that's something that you guys will, like, our viewers will actually notice a lot in these um in these gospels, in these writings, is that most of what they do present, it's a retelling of a story that we already know. Like they add things or they take away things. Uh, it happens a lot in the gospel of Mary, for example, which is a, a quite interesting one. And I, I was very fascinated by reading it. And I think it happens here, right? Like, I, good thing that you mentioned this. Um, yeah, like by arguing that Mary was born in a similar way of the Savior, it's a lot easier to elevate her to a more divine status than just by simply, like, because imagine how difficult it would it be to argue that Mary was sinful, but at the same time, it's immaculate. Yeah. And at the same time, she's divine or like she's kind of divine because, um, and we already mentioned this. If any of our viewers are Catholics, 
Um, here is the thing, though. Catholics do not believe Mary is divine. And, and that's very important to say. Um, but they do approach her as such. And that's quite interesting. That, that's quite interesting approach to Mary, mostly because they hold certain doctrines. And I, we, I think we already discussed these doctrines in some other episode. Um, but they, they hold certain doctrines that are almost divine in the sense that Mary takes this personality or this like things, for example, that immaculate conception and all these divine things that go around it, right? Uh, and that are presented precisely in these gospels. So it's, it's quite, quite interesting to actually see where this is born from. Yeah, and- um, What a story actually. Yeah, it's, and like I said, this is probably of all the documents that we read, this is probably the most relevant because um, it's still used um, by mostly Catholics to um, argue for the for the perpetual virginity for um, immaculate conception. Yeah, the, part, well, partly for the immaculate conception as well. Um, but yeah, um, like I think um, that basically covers the essential bits of James. Or of the Protoevangelium. Yeah, because that's mostly what he talks about. Uh, honestly, like whatever else that you may find, like anybody really reading it, you will see that sort of highlighted like the very relevant things. Um, but okay, so um, do you want to go into the infancy gospel of Thomas, which I think is another one that is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, go, go for it. Yeah, uh, all right. So the, the infancy gospel of Thomas, if I am correct, and I read the actual version of it, um, it's a gospel that fills the gap. As I was telling you before, right? Like most of these writings, what they attempt to do is to tell us a little bit bits of story that we as human beings feel that we're missing in the actual biblical story, right? In the biblical account. And this one in particular is telling us about the childhood of Jesus. But he's presenting us a Jesus Christ with, who is not a rebellious kid, but a very conflicted one in the sense of how does he interact with human beings in a regular basis. And allow me to explain that. He, for example, there is incidents here where he's just like playing and doing like random kid stuff. This is and the, then I don't know where. Yeah, like, honestly, yeah, like he just. This is one of the funniest documents, like. Yeah, it's, it's weird to read it, right? <laughs> uh, because he's just chilling and, and like he's playing near the river and he's making something like animals or something. And then some other kid approaches him and he, and the kid just like, I think it slaps the thing or like mocks the thing that uh, that Jesus was making. I don't remember exactly. And Jesus goes like, oh, oh yeah. So he just goes like full God on him and kills him, right? <laughs> and that happens quite often because... Baby Jesus, he's pretty much like, and, and if we think about it from a very human perspective, he's learning to control his emotions, right? Yeah, I think Jesus kills like five kids in this book. <laughs> yeah, like a bunch of people, man. Like he's just going around I mean, killing I people think, when they get, he yeah, gets upset like, at them. There's like five kids and two teachers. <laughs> the teachers are hilarious though, because <laughs> the teachers are, <laughs> I'm like, oh man. Uh, the, the thing with the teachers is this though, the, the teachers try to tell Jesus or try to teach something to Jesus, right? Uh, and they're like, yeah, I'm going to be the, finally the one that teaches this kid that it's like the problematic kid that knows a lot. 
and they approach him and they, they come up with like this really intense wisdom and being like, yeah, like, tell me what is, I think they say, tell me what is Delta or something like that. And then, or Omega, I think. And then Jesus answers like, well, you tell me what is Delta and then I will tell you what is Omega or something. And it's very interesting because that's pretty much showing us like a deeper understanding that Jesus may have of earthly knowledge, you know, like yeah. it's trying to like, and I think that's pretty much like the spirit of this gospel in particular, showing us a God, a baby God or like a, ch a child God who is so incredibly knowledgeable at that very young age that even the very knowledgeable or very like proficient thinkers of, um, of our time will not be able to actually school him or rival him in any sense or any way. Right. Yeah. No. Like I said, I think it's so funny. That's probably like the funniest um, ancient document relating to Jesus. It presents Jesus like um, <laughs> he's almost like a demonic kid. Um, he's very scary. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he goes around killing other kids and <laughs> and teachers and like the people in the village. They want to kick his family out. Because, yeah, he keeps killing people. I and, think Joseph schools him, right? Like, Joseph actually calls, yeah, calls him that, out on that. Yeah, Joseph, like, tries to uh, discipline him. But then Jesus, I think Jesus tells him, like, you can't treat me like this because um, I existed. Like, I, I was beside you when you were born. And, like, I existed before everyone all the people that are here. And he's just having like bragging rights. Yeah, like he like starts bragging like and like shitting on his stepdad. Pretty much saying, you're not my real dad. Pretty much. Um, and now, uh, would you like to give like some historical like background to this one? Like where was it located? Like meaning like years and stuff. What do we know about it historically speaking? Oh, uh, like because so. I think it will be good that whenever we jump into one of uh, dynastic gospels or like all these gospels yeah. like you give a small introduction um so this one is not um exactly an agnostic gospel it's like you said it's um it gives us details about jesus childhood because as it's well known um after the birth narratives in the canonical gospels um, Jesus is pretty much absent until and being he's an adult, except for the time when he's twelve years old in the temple. But that's like I think one chapter. And yeah. um, other than that, the traditional sources are pretty silent on Jesus' upbringing. And like you said, this is an attempt to fill in the gap. And something sim like similar to the uh, Proto Evangelium of James, which tried to fill in the gap for Mary. Uh, this, like, it's also, it tries to be almost like a prequel to the Gospels because at the very end, it, it finishes with the canonical story of the temple as it's found in Luke. And I uh, want you guys, oh, yeah. Yeah. Continue, continue. Yeah, well, I was going to say something else. Uh, I want you guys, like our viewers or listeners, to think about most of these writings. And I, and I really like the word that you use, like a prequel, as prequels to the Bible. Um, many of them are prequels, sequels. Like, if you're a fan of Star Wars, you will completely understand what I mean. Like, 
they're really trying to fill in the gaps of a lot of things in the Bible that people do not understand or that do not simply just want to believe by faith. They, they really want to have an explanation to that. Yeah. And like, let us be honest, like if we actually had a divinely inspired book on Jesus' um, childhood, it would be a quite an interesting book, mostly because it will show a very, like it will be a, 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 a lot, it will be a lot more divine in the sense of it will have a lot more impact on the life of people reading it. Like, again, like one of the main criteria used for deciphering which books will come into the Bible or not was the spiritual impact that these books had on people when they read them. Um, and this Gnostic gospel, as we said, is just a weird book. It's a scary book to a point, right? It's just like, it's pretty much the what if Jesus was a very intense child that was very disobedient to Joseph and like was a murderous kind of like infancy God and really like making clay sculptures, right? So what about all of that? It actually pushes that very intensely. And like another thing that is interesting about this gospel is it's not Gnostic, as you say. It's not Gnostic in nature. Um, it's not, no, actually, let me, let me not Gnostic on authorship, it's Gnostic in nature. And what I mean by that is, again, it's presented hidden knowledge from Jesus, uh, sort of. Uh, and, and Jesus, and I don't know if you agree with this, but actually this small Jesus is very Gnostic. <laughs> he's very like, you guys don't know anything. <laughs> it's like, like he's pretty much that, that small baby oh, Jesus yeah. from, like, um, from Job. Like, you, you know, when God goes like, what do you know about this and that and that? He's pretty much like that. So yeah. it's very, very intense. Um, yeah, he takes up after his dad. But yeah, like... <laughs> pretty much, yeah. In this one, like, I think it's... um, It tries to show that Jesus was always um, aware of his divinity. Um, yeah. I, like, I think it's also, like, another apologetics attempt. It's not like... Because there were there were sects of Christians who believed that uh, you know Jesus he was the son of God, but he was adopted as the son of God. He was not born as a he was not a divine being that was born in, into um, that became incarnate. Um, instead, at the at the baptism, um, the father adopted him as the son of God, and this is basically like saying nope um jesus was always um powerful he was always divine even when he was a little kid and you know he was always wiser than everyone around him wiser than his father wiser wiser than the teachers i think also this it's not as important as the proto-evangelium of james but it's important in the sense that the section you mentioned um, about Jesus uh, making the clay birds. So basically Jesus is playing in the river and he picks up the mud and starts shaping some birds. And I think it's in the Sabbath as well. So, you know, some other kid tries to get Jesus in trouble for making clay birds in the Sabbath. And when Joseph um, gets mad and goes to ask or gets asked why he is doing that in the Sabbath. Um, Jesus 
it makes the birds come to fly. life. Yeah, he makes yeah, them yeah. come to life and then they fly away. And what's interesting is that there's a very similar, it's almost exactly the same word for word story that's also found in the Quran. Um, yep. So, which again suggests um, how well known this document was. And it was still being passed around into the. 6th and 7th century. Other documents, like um, some that we're going to talk about later, they stopped being passed around. They stopped being popular after a while. Of course, some of them were Gnostics, so after Gnosticism was pushed out, um, there were no more Gnostics write these books. But other books like this one, um, they, they saw were well known in the church like you know throughout the middle ages and into the modern period but yeah is there anything else you want to say about this this one all right there's a couple of things um one of them is this this one and the the one in james uh the the gospel of the broad evangelion of james again like they find their utility on the fact that they are really filling the gaps right Uh, Regardless of what kind of a story do we have in them, they're putting out this service of this is what I think Jesus will have been like according to what we saw from Jesus, right? Because that's another thing. And you, you like our viewers could actually like research this and they will be fascinated by this. Most of these uh, works were written way before Jesus died, right? Like they were not historically like um substantial when when jesus was around and because he could he could have discredited them right he could have been like uh, that's a lie um that didn't actually happen i uh, didn't actually kill that kid <laughs> or whatever right he could have been like nope um but most of these were written after pretty much after jesus left and what, one of the things about that that we have to really remember is that anybody could really write anything they want, um, especially if everybody that they're writing about is dead, right? Like by that time, Mary was dead. She could have discredited Joseph was dead. Uh, was James alive? Yeah, I think James, no. Well, James I think he was. Yeah, yeah he's, he died already, right? Yeah, so he, like, he got killed, wasn't he? By Harry? Yeah, because he's... Yeah, because it's second century, right? Like, pretty much nobody was alive that could actually yeah. go and be like, so that, that's a lie. And it, that was one of the biggest challenges that Christianity has. Uh, I, I don't know if you agree on this, but I think one of the reasons why Gnostics appear in Christianity was because Christianity was so incredibly, like, um, how can I say that? It was so unestablished i don't know if i get my point across like it was not developed completely like christians by that time actually were living by faith in a lot of things they didn't have a system of understanding or explaining a lot of things they believe so because of that gnostics appear and really had to give answers to a lot of the attacks not only gnostics right because we also have like the apologetic fathers and and they did a good job like that's why i'm here right but um, but yeah, like even even though this book may be a little bit scary to read sometimes, or like impressive to read, we have to understand that it's an approximation of what the childhood of Jesus could have been. And uh, another thing, as a Christian, but reading it, 
one of the main reasons why I, in particular, will not accept it as part of the canon is mostly because it presents a Jesus that by nature is rebellious and by nature is disobedient. And if such is the case, then he's not living an un, like non-sinful life. You know what I mean? Like uh, He's living under sin because he's behaving as any other human being. So that would completely contradict what it is arguing by, by the church in regards of the nature of Jesus. So it's quite interesting to see one of the biggest like red points that it has for me or like the, one of the biggest um, wake-up calls from that gospel, even though that I may enjoy reading it and find it like hilarious, it's that part of presenting a Jesus that is so incredibly humane that it's rebellious in his humanity. It's, it's yeah. not a humane, perfect humane kind of thing. So it's quite interesting. And, and again, like if someone were to make a horror movie about this, I think it would be a good one. Um, because it has a lot of material, like honestly, as yeah, fan well, fiction. Kind of reminds me of like um, those uh, superhero movies where like the superhero gets a new power and then he's like doesn't really know how to use it, and you know he goes around um, getting in trouble, like um, pretty much. Yeah, he's too strong for his own good, basically. Um, so it's that type of story. Yeah, pretty much. Um, definitely. I think you make a really good comparison. It's a superhero kind of gospel. Yeah. But um, yeah, we can move into another one. I was just going to yeah. say, um, I think what's interesting is that, um, yeah, uh, like you were saying, um, this one and and especially the Proto-Evangelium of James, um, they have an, like an apologetic um, thesis. Yeah, um, like they have a thesis that they want to get across. I think it's like if you if you're interested like to anyone who's interested in the history and development of early Christianity and Christian thought, um, I think it's like reading these documents like carefully and so slowly and paying attention. Um, it kind of gives you a glimpse of the mindset of early Christians at the time that these documents were being written. Because these are things they were primarily things they were concerned about. Like you were saying, they, they had all these questions and all these gaps and they had to come up with answers or they had yep. to find answers. And this is the result. It's these documents are how they try to make sense of any empty gaps or any questions that they had. Because, of course, like they were pretty early on. They did not, canon did not even exist at this point. Um, and it's an authoritative um, document. Yeah. Um, because that's what the canon is. Yeah. Right? Well, actually, I want to pause here and jump a little bit on this. Um, there was a canon. Right, like they, because they cannot be not. Yeah, yeah. Like um, that, that's why I said. Uh, yeah, that's why I added on as authoritative document because yeah, like of course, um, no, these documents were already written, um, and they were passed around. They were accepted in some churches, but it wasn't. They weren't universally adopted, and. There were still a lot of questions, especially in the earlier periods. But yeah, like what well, my point was that there was a lot of uh, beliefs that were still pretty primitive, and yeah. I think any Christian today, like they can rely on centuries, literally thousands of years of 
theological development for any question, any concern that they may have. Like, if, yeah, pretty much everything has an answer, right? Yeah, but if you put yourself in the mindset of a Christian living in the year 144, um, like you have so many empty gaps in your religious system. In comparison to other religions, right? Because yeah, that you want answers. Again, like, yeah, like for example, if you were, if you were to go to the Greeks right, or to the Romans, and, and another important thing, a lot of new Christians in that age, that time, came out of these religions, so they were accustomed exactly. to sort of like a narrative that was very detailed to to like the highest degree that they possibly could, right? But um, obviously they will be like, okay, so where did Jesus come from? What was his childhood? What did he do with that? Was he powerful all the time? Was you know, is Mary divine also? Like, what, what's up with Mary? Like, um, what's up with Joseph? Where, where is Joseph? Uh, why don't we hear about him in the scripture? Exactly. It's Stuff all these, like that, right? Yeah, all these sort of questions, and then they have to develop the answers or um, use them as certain apologetic tools. Um, something else I read about this um, document is that on the introduction to the in the book that I have, the author suggests I think that it, this may have been written for kids. What? Yeah. So it may have been like um, you know, kind of how like uh, they do different stories in Sunday school. Yeah. Like they wanted to come up with like a gospel thing for kids and kind of like tell them about like Jesus and how he was a kid and stuff like that. Right. And oh, wow. And yeah, like <laughs> they, they, <laughs> this is what used to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is what they um came up with for Sunday school. Be nice or <laughs> kid. Jesus is going to kill you. <laughs> what? Oh wait. Okay. I didn't know that about this. Um, but yeah, like, Wow, that's actually fascinating uh, to think that people will actually get kids to read this, mostly because of the, the also, like, here's another thing, like, the, the kind of topics that he talked about, right, because it's not a, a like, normally Sunday school is, is very, like, and that's why we have to love Jesus, right, and, and that's one of my biggest critiques to Sunday school, I think Sunday school should be a lot more theologically inclined, a lot more heavy in that sense, Obviously, to the capabilities of children, right? Like, you're not going to ask them to be like a didache and like explain it. But uh, yes, actually, like, explain stuff to them. Now, it's quite interesting to see that if such was the case, and this is actually literature taught for kids, uh, it is interesting to see what kind of God were they presenting to these kids, right? Like, because it's not a very loving God. Well, in sense. that's part of the argument like it's because it doesn't have a very developed theology it's a gnostic document not in the sense that you know it was written by gnostics but it's that it's centered around um jesus own knowledge of himself um and it's also also it's interesting that in contrast to the canonical gospels there are no, um, there's very, very little inter- interaction with the Old Testament. For example, you don't get a lot, you don't get a lot of quotations from the Old Testament like you do in, um, in, in the canonical Gospels, right? Or even in James, for example. In James, he refers to things that happen on the New Testament, right? Like 
that will be said by Mark, Luke, or whatever, right? Oh, yeah. He, he really tries to get things together, like, to be like, this goes here, pretty much, in the story. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know it goes here because you already accept these Gospels. So that's a very interesting, like, approach. <laughs> uh, I would even say, like, that's a very interesting marketing scheme. Uh, <laughs> in the sense of, so you like this book, I'm sure you're going to love mine, right? So <laughs> I'm, like, thinking of, of that way. We can discuss the next one. Um, sure, let's go to which one is the next. Oh, is the Via Tesseron? Is that the one? Yeah, so this one is exactly picking off right where um, what you were saying just now. Like you were, you were saying those documents would have been used almost as um, companion books to the um, canonical gospels. Well, this one is presented it's intended to be um a compilation of all four gospels traditionally it's um was believed to have been written in syriac um but now it's now i think um most people think it was written in greek originally but it's it was a very popular document among the syriac churches and it's still for um some churches it actually replaced the canonical Gospels because it's basically the four Gospels squished into one. The author, he arranges all the similar passages in the different Gospels and puts them together so that they become one one story and he um, organizes them in a way that... Pretty much might- what he does is he tries to give a simplified version of everything that happened, taking away the conflictive passages. It's basically the traditional narrative about Jesus' life that we have heard, but all combined into one book. And it's interesting because, like, if you think about it, when we talk about Jesus' life and his ministry, we pretty much talk like, the author of that the, we're calling this book yeah the yeah. author of the, the, the tesseron because we don't make very detailed well well yeah we don't make distinctions between each gospel right like unless we're quoting it so for example like the famous one is the birth narrative right the traditional birth narrative is a combination of matthew and luke yeah. um you have the annunciation and then joseph and mary traveled to Bethlehem because of the census, and then that's where Jesus was born. The Magi come, and then Herod's persecution, and so on. And it's like it's basically the same thing as the author here is doing. And now, I will actually send a question here, because I thought of this question, I have my own answer for that. But why do you think that will not be accepted in the Bible? Uh, so I read um, on the introduction that's on like on this copy that i have um it actually gives a quotation from a church father i'll see if i can find it right now so yeah the church father is theodoret uh from the fourth century he basically tells us that this was a very popular um gospel and the author's name is Titian. What he says is that he rejected it because it cut off a lot of the stuff about um, Jesus' physical birth and his uh, genealogies and stuff like that. 
his objection was that he cut off some stuff from the traditional Gospels. And he went around um, looking for uh, copies of the diatessaron. And he he would throw them away and replace them with the four Gospels. Now, here's the thing. Like, one of the reasons why I will argue that this will not get into the Bible, and um, mostly like things that are actually considered while the Bible was actually like established as one book yeah. because back in the day it was just a bunch of like scrolls and different books um, is that one of the biggest criteria and I think anybody that has had contact with a Christian knows this for accepting the veracity or like the, the validity of a book in the Bible is that we argue that these books are the word of God, right? Mm. And I think one of the reasons why it, this will not actually make it into the Bible is because it's taken away from that. It's taken away, even if it is taken away like the boring passages, quotation marks, because I believe that yeah. all passages in the Bible are like relevant. Yeah. But uh, even if it's taken away from like that passage that says whatever boring thing someone may think, for a narrative sort of like goal or perspective, even then it's taken away from the Bible, right? So that will be like one of the strongest points that um, earlier, like scholars of, of Bible or dogma, whatever, could actually have had against this particular book. Because again, in nature, it's not that, it's not as controversial as other ones that we just mentioned, right? Yeah, um, yeah, because it's basically just um, a retelling. A retelling of the four gospels. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't really change anything. It doesn't present a different. Um, it's, it's pretty much what, what happens when you buy a book that is a commentary on another book. Yeah, it's basically like um, like you said, commentary or um, an abridgment. You know, when you have a book that's like really long, they yeah. They print, yeah, they print the most relevant sections. But here's the thing, though, because what you just said, um, it doesn't seem to have been that relevant to the to its original audience because, as the quotation from the church father, Theodoret, said, it was a very popular book. Like, um, it says yeah. that he went around and he threw away, like, 200 copies that he found because yeah it was like pretty well known and common and accepted by churches and i think even like that's why it survived so long because the serious I, I would i would just say this it became popular because people are lazy i are lazy <laughs> readers yeah that's, <laughs> and they're like are you telling me there is a shorter version <laughs> we just do that that's pretty much the equivalent of watching the movie instead of reading the book no yeah. like but yeah, like um, in uh, the Syriac churches, they did accept it as almost as equivalent as the traditional yeah. Gospels. Like the recommended book to read if you wanted to know about this. But like, here's the thing, though. Like, I was thinking um, maybe because I think the church would have preferred to go straight to the apost- well to the apostolic documents. So it, it might yeah. be they might be more comfortable reading the words of Peter and then the words of. Oh, John. definitely. Remember that another of the aspects that was considered for the election of the canon, yeah. especially in the New Testament, was did these guys actually knew Jesus. 
at another one. Were they able or capable to be reaffirmed by the power of miracles of God in their like offices? And like yeah. obviously, if, if you're telling me like, yo, this guy actually like healed this person and he wrote this about Jesus, and then you tell me like this is a compilation of everything he said. I mean, like, yo, give me the original, right? Like, and that's yeah. something that we're going to see a lot here because, uh, like we said, um, authorship is, like, really important to establishing uh, its authority and its popularity. Because, yeah, people wanted to know what the apostles were taught. They wanted to know what they were teaching. And, you know, it's that, that's why the author of the Protoevangelium of James says he is the brother of Jesus. He's James. Um, you know, he sounds better. Yeah. He is <laughs> pretty much giving the document that authority. Um, yeah. And it's similar. Like we'll see similar things with other gospels, um, later on as well. Um, I there... think this episode is going to go for long. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's almost like, <laughs> Yeah, but we may actually make a second part, right? And then and a couple of more like books to it. Yeah. But um. Oh yeah. So um. Do you want to jump into the next one then? Sure. Um. um which one was it? Martians. Uh, Martian. Yeah. Our dear Martians. According so, to some fathers of the church, the primo the the first one or like the first son of the devil. <laughs> he was a hated man, man. <laughs> Like yeah. the early church didn't like him. Like obviously, like the early Orthodox Church didn't like him. So you want to give the intro? Yeah. So like you said, um, Martian was an early Christian, or after he um, kind of became like a Gnostic, he was not a full Gnostic like other later people, but he did adopt a lot of their approach. And yeah. primarily, their his rejection of the of Yahweh as God. Um, you know, he did not think the God of the Old Testament was the but same, same God that sent Jesus. In his view, there were multiple um, divine powers, and you know, they had their own their own plans, and when they were in conflict with each other, and the Yahweh from the Old Testament uh, was a completely different being than Jesus and the powers that had sent Jesus to earth. So what Martian did, and what he was, he became infamous for, was basically, in essence, throwing away the Old Testament. At this time, most Christians would have had the Old Testament as their scripture. Uh, Marcion threw that away. He said, like, like that was a different God. Mostly because he couldn't reconcile, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he couldn't reconcile like the love of Jesus and the wrath of the Father. Right? That was like one of the biggest challenges for him. Exactly. Um, and you still hear this today that um, oh, definitely. God, God from the Old Testament is an angry, evil, wrathful God um, that he likes to punish and torture. But then Jesus is like hippie and lovey-dovey and... Um, friendly to everyone and you know you hear that type of stuff all the time still and Mar a lot of Martians. yeah Martian is where it all started 
Um, and basically, um, Marcion had his own church that followed him. And, and because, According to the early fathers, he started yeah. churches like Wasp, Magnest. <laughs> yeah, he, um, he basically divided the church into his followers and the more orthodox Christians. Well, what happened was that since he had to throw away the entire Old Testament, um, he still had to deal with the Gospels because the Gospels, they quote the Old Testament repeatedly. Um, there's yeah. a lot of prophecies given in the New Testament, especially about Jesus. Mm-hmm. But Marcion, he he was against all that, so he didn't want them in his version of the gospel. And he threw basically away anything, any references to Jesus, or I mean, any references to Yahweh, uh-huh. and which meant throwing away a lot of the gospels. Um, what Martian kept as a gospel, what his followers read was basically um, the gospel of Luke, uh, uh, Paul, he really liked Paul. Yeah, he liked Paul a lot. And it's mostly why he kept the Gospel of Luke, because traditionally Luke was the physician that accompanied Paul. Um, traditionally, it's been accepted that the author of Luke and Acts has very similar theology to Paul. So yeah. Marcian would have Marcian liked that. But, you know, he still had to make some changes and to make it fit into his theology. Marcion's gospel is basically Luke, uh, edited version of Luke. And then they also read the letters of Paul, as you said. Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually, um, to see the work of this guy, um, mostly because he was such a radical deviation from Christianity. And another interesting thing about him was that he he was the son of a, I think it was like a bishop or something in the church. Um, So yeah, like that thing with like, why is it that the children of like pastors are always like so disobedient and rebellious? Like that's not the new in the church. It always has happened. Um, and, And it's quite interesting because one of the reasons why he's kept Paul is because obviously like that philosophical uh, influence and very platonistic influence also um, of looking at two different gods and looking at all these Gnostic principles in regards of like there is more than what the Bible is telling us, right? Like that idea that by rejecting Yahweh, he, he established a bigger cosmology than that preached in Christianity. And this bigger cosmology centered around God's battling it out or looking at it out over how to deal with humanity, right? And why is it, again, like looked at something negative by other Christians? Mostly because it is directly attempting against the divinity of Christ as understood by Christianity, right? It is a direct sort of like attacked on how do we understand the relationship of the son and the father yeah. being both of them like the same now 
what do you think about like you actually like explained it already, but I wanted to like poke a little bit on that. Why do you think he really was unable to reconcile the old and the new testament? Well, according to what you read. I think like um what I was gonna say is what he liked about Paul was the emphasis on salvation through grace. You know, he really rejected he uh, um the law as it's laid out in the old testament and he did not understand like he he could not um see why god or you know if jesus was had was god then why he would give um the law and then come and um say that the law had been overturned and you know everyone is now saved by grace and that's where he saw this um contradiction basically because it's yeah like you said uh, jesus he has he appears to have a different nature than the god from the old testament who is more malevolent he's more in marcian's view he's he's more like a dictator that gives yeah. laws and punishments and that type of stuff. And then Jesus comes by. It's like, um, yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, I think like that was ma basically the main disconnect. Um, and then that motivated a lot of uh, other Marcion's other um, beliefs. And do you think that he embodies quite well a lot of the doubts and a lot of like the struggles that a lot of people have? With the Bible in the 21st century, because uh, that's another thing that I hope that our viewers are catching. Uh, most of these Gnostic books have become relevant because all of these questions and all of these challenges presented by many of them are still relevant today, right? Like, are things that people are very interested about and that people want to know a lot more about. What do you think about that? Uh, so this can be a slightly uh, off-topic, but somewhat relevant. It's that. Um, recently I've started to think that, um, as a civilization, we like to think of ourselves as, um, Aristotelians. Humanism kind of thing. Yeah. Like, um, you know, Aristotle was primarily focused, you know, he rejected a lot of the idealism of Platonism. He is traditionally understood as having a grounded philosophy. Um, you can see this in the fresco from Raphael at, of the Academy, you yeah, know, yeah. where Plato is pointing up, Arist uh, Aristotle is pointing down because, you know, he is more grounded in his reason, like beginning through in the Middle Ages um, and throughout, you know, even until now, we still like to think of ourselves as Aristotelians. But the reality is that we're all Platonists. And what I mean yeah. is that we all like to um, to split reality into the ideal and what we imagine is perfection and in like into some like distant realm. And then we see ourselves here physically, um, you know, living like a very mundane life. And yeah. we should strive towards the ideal. And, you know, it's the same thing, like, you see this repeatedly in, in history, in history of philosophy, and in history of theology, um, because the reality is that um, Gnostics, as a, as a main 
branch of Christianity, it, it fell off really early. And, you know, they became widely rejected and denounced as heretics. But if you're familiar with um, the different groups that have arisen throughout the centuries, you know, you always find some version of Gnostics. You know, in the Middle Ages, you had people like the Cathars. Um, oh, yes. They came around and basically repeated the same things. And they were following from, I think that it was the Paulicians that they were following. And there was all these groups, you know, and they kept coming back up uh, because it's really appealing. It's um, to say that our suffering is um, limited to our physicality after we can escape, like our souls can escape the physical and, you know, we will have for like forever live in eternal bliss in heaven, which is another thing. Like it's another example of this uh, idealism that we have. It's a division of um, heaven and earth, right? I actually agree though. I, I think a lot of Christians do think as Platonists in the sense that they do divide the spiritual from the mundane. And by studying with Catholics, I have actually been able to see that firsthand because they do make that comparison. They do make that division really hard. For example, one of the terms that they use that is fascinating, it's, uh, they use the word laicos. I don't know how to translate it into English. Um, Laico means someone that is a believer but does not work in an office of the church. Yeah. Um, like sort of like secular, but they are not secular because they're believers. Um, and wh what they use this term for is anybody that works within the church and those church things, like, I don't know, participates on camping or whatever, like whatever that they need to do for the church. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they do so, but do not belong to like the work the working church, uh, if, if I will say it like that, like they, they, they are serving for the church, but they are not employed by the church in that sense, yeah, right? Like, it's part and, institution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And for example, un laico or someone like that wouldn't be asked to perform an exorcism. And what I mean by that is that in my particular case, and at least for what I've seen in a lot of Protestants, and I don't know if you read Max Weber, um, his book on the Protestant ethics and the spirit of capitalism. Have you read that? No. Well, it's, it's a quite interesting book um, because he, he actually argues for these differences on how Christians from different denominations, Catholics and Protestants specifically, view their place in the world. And he says that Catholics tend to view as... View, view, um, I put it a lot easier. Catholics are a lot more Aristotelian. No, are, are a lot more Platonistic, right? Um, because they do divide things. While Protestants, because of how Luther interpreted a lot of the scripture, they see it as my job as a carpenter. It's a way in which I serve God directly. Yeah. So it's my ministry. And, and that's where, where, where that idea of what is your calling comes from. Because calling is an under, like, as an undertone, it has a very religious background, right? Yeah. A calling from God. 
So it's quite interesting to see that. And in my particular case, when I started reading that book, I started challenging that, that view of my, of my life because back in the day, I have to say, I, do agree, I did agree with that. But today I actually push forward to try to see the spiritual and celestial things. And even like, and this will be interesting, even the demonic aspects of everyday life, you know? Um, for example, in the case of the New Jerusalem, I have a very interesting position here, which is, I think, or a little bit orthodox in that sense. I don't believe that the New Jerusalem is here in the world because I do believe that it's going to be a physical place, yeah. you know? Uh, and that's very scatological. But I do believe, for example, that whenever I'm watching, um, I don't know, certain presidents go to war, I, I do believe that they're under the influences of like evil spirits, right? Demonic forces. I, for example, do believe that when something miraculous happens, it's, it's under the, the influence of God, right? And so I do not separate my physical experience from my um, spiritual experience. I believe that they're one and the same. Okay, yeah. But it's very hard to do that. <laughs> it's incredibly hard because, as you said, we are very divisive on that, mostly because we don't, we, it, it takes practice to, more than practice, it takes determination to actually see the, see the world in that way all the time because it's not natural. You know, like, I don't know if we agree on that. Yeah, I think it would like it would take a lot of um, effort and focus um, to maintain both. When you're going, when you're dealing with work and stuff, um, the last thing you want to think about is demons, demons <laughs> playing with the yeah. traffic light or anything like that, right? <laughs> exactly. I think, like for example, the delivery guy on the pits is not coming. I'm like these demons. No. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows, right? <laughs> Something like that. Um, exactly. But yeah, I, I think that I think it's a quite interesting point that you make. That and we did got a topic. I knew that we were we were gonna do that. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's, it's quite the, interesting. It's, right? It is so relevant because um, that would have been a very influential uh, view of Marcion and later Gnostics. Yeah. Um, because yeah, like they always. Like something that is consistent among Gnostics and Gnostic groups is that they do want to maintain this division. You know, um, there's your physical reality, which is lesser than your ideal. They'll have different arguments and they'll present it differently, but it's basically the same thing. It's still a very common um, approach even today and even within churches. And I don't know if you agree in this, but now looking at it from a very, like, forget about Christianity and forget about, like, what Christianity is, and then just analyze it as what it is attempting to become or to be, or it's claiming to be. And wouldn't you say that it's very sad that the standard of Christianity is so incredibly high that by being ignorant of everything that we're discussing right now, and by being ignorant of a lot of things that Christianity has to offer, you do become a, sm a small kind of heretic without actually knowing, right? Because I think that's the worst kind of heretic. Like, that's yeah. the worst kind of anything. Being something without you actually knowing that you are, it's, it's kind of quite sad, actually. Yeah. Um, not only for the person that is experiencing that, but also for like the institution that it's allowing that it's, it's, it's very sad exactly that's like that's all the source of a lot of 
frustration um, because there's a lot of error that's being taught. And I saw this meme. Um, it's basically that, um, you know, how, you know, how there's like Christian uh, music groups, like, um, oh, yes, like enough. Christian bands and stuff, you know, and some of them are like are really famous and they have thousands and thousands of people going to the concerts. Um, yeah, and listening to them like they're like preachers and stuff. Yeah, and, and the thing is that oftentimes the lyrics don't stick to um the orthodox beliefs. Like, or like, you know what's even worse? Sometimes they are they go full heretical, heretical just because it rhymes. That's what I mean. Like a lot of people are not gonna push back on it because you know they don't know, and what they're doing is like thousands of people are singing as heretics. I, I say this all the time, and you know, it's not. It might be annoying that I keep bringing in this up, but there's a South Park episode. No, no, it's okay. South Park is an actually like I will say that. I know Christians will be upset <laughs> about that, but no, it's um. There's a there's a South Park an incredible episode. piece of satire. Where they where they make a Christian rock band and oh, wow. and the lyrics they're like basically Cartman makes a rock band a Christian rock band and he writes lyrics and what he's doing is writing normal like love songs but then he he changes them so Jesus. That, into Jesus so then he's singing love songs about Jesus and it's really really funny. Um, and you know what's the worst? That's something my wife and I have noticed because um, there was a time where we actually like, started worrying about this, mostly because of what I said earlier. Like, once you start learning about these books, you start learning about these guys, and you yeah. start learning about the heresies and stuff, you start noticing a lot of heresies everywhere, right? Like, and it's very upsetting because it's just like, you know, that if you start calling out the heresies, everybody's going to hate you, right? Yeah, they get because mad. they're going to be like, yeah, like, you don't know anything. Uh, that's not what we meant, whatever. I'm just like, I don't care what you meant. <laughs> this is what you're doing. And and yeah. yeah, like there's so many songs in church that I can actually dedicate to my wife, but I can I just have to change the, the yeah. word Jesus. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like um, and I think we talked about this before when um when we were talking about the Trinity, because a lot of people like it's orthodox belief that the Trinity is the central aspect of Christianity. Um, and it's central to our, our understanding of God, yes. Yeah, and, it's, and it has been for since at least the Council of Nicaea, 325. But the thing is that a lot of Christians, they, they don't have the words to describe this very fundamental belief they have. It's not something that they have thought about, or if they have thought about, they don't have an orthodox foundation or um, understanding of what the belief actually is that they are supposed to believe. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because... Again, I don't know if you agree in this, but Christianity is incredibly complex. Like people tend to come to me and be like, like, oh, how can you believe this and that? And I'm like, dudes, honestly, like I'm, I'm actually fascinated by this, mostly because of how complex it is and how little people, how, how few people actually understand it. Because just if actually we, we should have looked into percentages for next episodes because I'm, I think I'm, we're moving into the Gnostics for, for next episode but we should look 
into statistics on how many Christians actually have theological training in the church. I, I know that the, the, <laughs> the percentage is going to be very sad. Um, but just by looking at those percentages, you could actually start looking at the huge worrying of, are you telling me that you're believing something or you're saying you believe something that you haven't even studied like 1% of it? You know what I mean? Like it's just like emotional and it's just like you just let yourself go. For example, going back to Martian, right? One of the reasons why the church went so hard on him as to like actually roast him <laughs> all the time, right? They didn't like him. Any opportunity they had to talk bad about him, they did so. Um, and why was the case? Why was why did they do that, right? They did it because pretty much everybody that was roasting him knew each other, first of all, because they, they had some kind of contact with each other. And another, they were very zealous. They, they were zealous of what they actually believed, right? Like they, they were like, no, this is what we believe and this is how we're figuring out. And like, you cannot, <laughs> you cannot think outside the box here, right? Like, this is how it has to be. And that allows Christianity to really shape into something that becomes long lasting. Right, because imagine, yeah, and it happened, right? Like during the Middle Ages. Imagine if we had had like really hardcore controversies about the person of Christ during the Crusades. <laughs> that would have devastated the church, right? Um, so, so, so it's quite interesting to see Martian then come up and then, and then start arguing like there is different gods and stuff. And then it's very interesting to see the same thing pop up, meaning there's one of the things, either the church is not doing a really good job educating um, the believers, which I honestly believe that that's the case, or simply like these things are right in a sense, right? Like are right to question things. Oh, and yeah. I honestly believe this is the first, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. because if they keep coming out, like they're actually pushing at something. Yeah, it's but I don't believe they're pushing at something of relevance, right? I, I believe that the problem is that the church is not educating people and people are just coming up with the same questions because the Bible will take you to those questions. There, there's going to be a point where you're going to ask, uh -huh, but like, what's up with this, right? Yeah. But yeah. Um, and I was just going to say, like, um, now that you mentioned it, it, from my view, it's similar to what you're describing, but it's it works almost um, with the same mechanisms of evolution. Um, okay. What I mean is that early Christianity, um, very early on, you know, there were many different views about all the types of different aspects, you know, um, every, pretty much every belief was questioned and, you know, there were always different groups claiming different things. And as people debated and there were struggles and uh, conflicts in the church, they challenge those and then uh, the strongest arguments the strongest beliefs were passed on to the next generations and you know slowly it was survival of the fittest yeah and slowly the most developed doctrines became the strongest ones in my view this is what became the orthodox belief and orthodox churches everything else is just pieces that survived and you know they managed to stay relevant to some group of people but they were not developed enough to challenge um the orthodoxy yeah and again um it may actually be a very beneficial thing 
for that to come back, you know, for for actually any system of thought. <laughs> uh, actually, I was I was teaching a class on the evolution of like the thought of humanity. Yeah. And so something that, that I was doing, especially looking at the Renaissance and explaining why the Renaissance came out or like appeared in human history, was that if you look at um, agreed methods of thinking, only when you see a hardcore anomaly, and when, when this uh, um, method of thinking is presented with a problem so big that they cannot solve, only then does the system evolve and it is quite interesting to observe that because then you look at christianity and until recent years i think christianity has once again been challenged harshly like globally meaning like it has been really really challenged especially in those countries that it believes to be safe quotation marks (laughs) It's been really challenged and, and it's been it's placing that demand on, okay, yourself, give me answers. And it's hilarious because most of the questions are questions that are like thousands of years <laughs> um, <Yeah>. old. <laughs> and we can see that with like the Gnostics. But again, like, <coughs> sorry. And one, 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 one thing that is also sad is that, well, the answers are already there, but because Christians do not know these answers, they have to come up with these weird answers. And, and then we have like heretical um Churches, heretical pastors, heretical yeah. doctrines. We have heretical like uh, music bands, right? Like Hilson and stuff. So <laughs> we have a bunch of groups. Yeah, like Hilson is just insane, man. Um, but we have a bunch of heretical like people just walking around and calling themselves to Christians, mostly yeah. because there is no other Christians to be like, you guys are wrong. You're heretics. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like one of the strongest arguments that Catholic Church has is that they insist that they have the authority of tradition right you know they can they can point to a long line of popes and saints and they say all these people they are backing us yeah Yeah, and they're they're with us but the reality is that when christians are presented with all these questions and you said like all these questions most of what we hear now it's not new um it's either the same question or the same problem reworded differently but most christians are not familiar with their own history and their own traditions so they don't have any answers to provide and so they have to either make them up or that's when you see a lot of um churches like they start breaking off and they start adopting like different um systems because those systems provide answers to um these problems that that they don't know how to how to answer and it's it's very interesting because in their attempt again in their attempt to sort of like answer this they become yeah gnostics (laughs) yeah but here's the thing like they don't even understand why gnostics are considered heretical because they don't like it's not something that they care to learn about so when you point out hey um we maybe you should not throw away the old testament they get upset in their mind you want to um go back to the law and And it's hilarious because you can imagine how the fathers of the church feel (laughs) yeah we're going to be in heaven be like seriously sometimes i think of um how 
Irenaeus like would imagine if if you could bring him back to life and take him Any to of them actually yeah but like Irenaeus is like he was like Irenaeus was he was kind of like the Calvin of the church fathers because he was the most zealot like I, I like that you use that word because you know that applies to um Irenaeus and you know he went hard against Marcion and like I think he even wrote a book called Against Heresies. Marcion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is basically just him uh taking shots Roast. at Marcion. Yeah, roasting Marcion. But yeah, um I don't know, did you wanna go to another one or uh, okay, uh I think that we could close it here. Uh take just like a small pause and we can start like closing it because uh, how long is, has it been already? Almost like almost an hours. hour? Yeah, it's almost two hours. Yeah, like it's a lot, right? Uh, we can finish with Irenaeus and that thing of like resurrecting the, the the early fathers. Yeah, we can just chill with that and then call it a night and come back to the Gnostics because we still have a lot of material to talk about. So yeah, like I agree. If you bring back any of the church fathers, I think they all will mean business, right? Like honestly, if I were to bring back, I don't know, an, an interest, oh, <laughs> San Jerome, um, Oh yeah, and just take him over to like the UN or take him over to like whatever like president that claims himself to be a Christian. He will instantly excommunicate them, right? Yeah. He would just be like, nope, <laughs> like just like he did with um, what is it like the Byzantium Emperor? He he did excommunicate him, right? Justin Martyr, um, not Justin, but something. Uh huh. I think it was Jerome. He said that it was uh, Tertullian was not part of the church because of they had all these disagreements and you know they were zealous enough that they made strong distinctions and if you did not agree with all these things then they were comfortable kicking you out yeah with kicking people out of the church and yeah jerome was also someone that went hard against marcion and now that you brought him up um jerome is also um uh he did a lot of textual work um you know he yeah. famously translated the hebrew bible into latin and he gave the latin vulgate which is what the translation of the bible into latin that the catholic church used for a long time he basically he also argued that um he argued against the authenticity of well the proto-evangelium of james uh, yeah, yeah. And it was on his authority that um, the Proto-Evangelium was actually declared as um, a heretical document in the, I think it was in the 5th century or the 4th. They were, you know, it was rejected by the church. And, you know, that's why it's so funny that a lot of Catholics now run to the Proto-Evangelium of James every time, every time you challenge uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. It's quite interesting, right? Um, and again, what does that tell you? It tells you, well, they do not know their own history. <laughs> uh, and it is really sad. And don't, wouldn't you agree? Like, it's very sad to see kind of, um, yeah, all these messed up things. And I think this is a good point to close, to, to close the conversation of tonight, mostly because, well, we have gone out for like a couple of hours now. And there is a lot of things that we have discussed. And uh, don't worry, our viewers, thanks to history, we have a lot of more theoretical topics to touch on. 
and a lot of more Gnostic books to discuss. And that's that will be the plan, right? Like for the next episode to keep talking a little bit about Gnostics. Yeah, we originally read um, several, like I think about 10 books um, or yep. 10 documents. Um, you know, so far we've only discussed three. We'll work through them over the next few episodes. Um, but yeah, I think um, we can end it here for tonight. All right, man. That will be it for tonight then. Yeah. Um, Well, thanks for listening and have a good night.